At least one person is injured in a rare tornado that hit Los Angeles County. It's the strongest one recorded in the area in 30 years. It's Thursday, March 23rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden is headed to Canada today. He'll meet with the country's prime minister to discuss issues like immigration and climate change. Also, the CEO of TikTok is getting ready to make the case against a U.S. ban on the social media app. I'll be testifying before Congress to share all that we're doing to protect Americans using the app and deliver on our mission to inspire creativity and to bring joy. And this hour, the U.S. is selling several nuclear-powered submarines to Australia as a way to boost influence in the South Pacific. It will help stabilize a region that over the past decade has been badly destabilized by China's increasingly aggressive actions. Cloudy skies and a chance of rain today. Highs in the low 60s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden flies to Canada today for a long-delayed visit. He'll meet Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. A looming issue in the Western Hemisphere is the deteriorating condition of Haiti. Haitian officials have asked for help against lawlessness, but neither U.S. nor Canadian officials have wanted to lead a military effort to the Caribbean nation. The CEO of video-sharing app TikTok is expected to face a barrage of questions from a House committee today. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports efforts to ban TikTok are gaining momentum from both sides of the aisle. TikTok CEO Sho Chu is expected to testify that the social media site is taking real action to address national security concerns. White House spokesman John Kirby says the administration will be monitoring today's testimony as it weighs its next steps. As you know, there's a CFIUS review going on. We're not going to get ahead of that. And as you also know, we've made very clear our national security concerns about that particular application. That's why it's been banned on government uh, devices. National security experts have warned that TikTok, which has 150 million users in the United States, could be used as a tool to spy on Americans by the Chinese government. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The Federal Reserve is continuing its fight against high inflation. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the central bank raised interest rates by a quarter percentage point yesterday, but hinted the cycle of rate hikes may be nearing its end. The Fed considered leaving interest rates unchanged this week to avoid putting more stress on the banking industry following the collapse of two big regional banks this month. But Fed Chairman Jerome Powell says the banking sector is strong enough to withstand higher rates, and he notes prices are still climbing much too fast. My colleagues and I are acutely aware that high inflation imposes significant hardship as it erodes purchasing power, especially for those least able to meet the higher costs of essentials, like food, housing, and transportation. On average, Fed policymakers expect to raise interest rates just once more this year by an additional quarter point. Banks are also expected to be more cautious about lending money in the wake of the two bank failures. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. A tornado touched down just outside Los Angeles yesterday in the suburb of Montebello. The National Weather Service says 17 buildings were damaged and one person was injured. National Weather Service official Ariel Cohen says while it seems unusual near Los Angeles, tornadoes do happen in California. While here in Montebello it's, it's you know, quite, quite rare, each year we do see typically weak tornadoes affecting the state of California. That audio is courtesy of ABC7 Los Angeles. This is the last day of a strike against the Los Angeles public school system. Unionized support staff have walked off the job, demanding a higher wage increase. L.A. teachers have observed the strike and didn't cross picket lines. 
This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Anti-Semitic incidents are reaching their highest ever recorded levels across New England. That's according to the Anti-Defamation League's annual audit of anti-Semitic incidents. It found that 152 were recorded just in Massachusetts. WBUR's Dave Fanet reports. The audit shows Massachusetts had the sixth highest number of anti-Semitic incidents in the country last year. Peggy Shuker with the Anti-Defamation League New England says cases here are rising faster than the national average. The normalization of hate and anti-Semitism in our world, whether online, in the public square, in our political campaigns, all of that has increased. It's become increasingly normalized. And then when people see that, they feel emboldened to add to it. Shuker says too many people believe anti-Semitism is a thing of the past. She says it's time to remove the cloak of invisibility and recognize that it is a problem. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Paniff. A nearly $1.5 billion plan to fund Boston Public Schools is moving on to the City Council for final approval. The Boston School Committee passed the budget plan last night in a 4-2 to two vote. That budget is a 5% increase from last year. The added money will go toward a new literacy curriculum. It would also be used to improve education programs for students with disabilities and English language learners. Fewer Boston Public Schools graduates are going on directly to college. That's according to a new report from the Boston Foundation and the Boston Private Industry Council. It finds just over half of students are taking a direct path to higher education upon graduation. Compared that to nearly 70 percent in 2017. The report says school fatigue brought on by the pandemic could be to blame. It also points to the high cost of college. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren is criticizing Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell. Her comments came as the Fed announced it'll it'll increase interest rates by a quarter percentage point. Speaking on CNN, Warren agreed that one of Powell's jobs is controlling inflation, but she claims he's risking pushing the country into a recession. His other job is regulatory oversight, and he has spent five years weakening regulations over these multi-billion dollar banks. Warren calls him, quote, a dangerous man to have in this job. Yesterday was the ninth consecutive time the Fed has opted to raise rates. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote. Returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage now through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Bruins will host the Montreal Canadiens tonight at home. The puck drops at 7 p.m. The Celtics are off tonight. They play the Pacers at home tomorrow. Cloudy skies today with a chance of rain starting around noon. We'll also have some gusty winds. High temperatures will be in the low 60s. Tonight, rain possible before 9 p.m. And the windy weather will continue overnight. We'll have low temperatures in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, partly sunny and breezy. Expect temperatures to reach the low 50s. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. What do rising interest rates in this country mean for people who would like to buy a home? Jasmine Howell would really like to know 
She says she escaped domestic violence, spent time in a homeless shelter, and now wants stability for herself and her son. I want to have property. I want to have something that I can call my own. I want something to pass down to my kids. So she's been trying to buy a house. She got a credit in order, took first-time homeowner classes, and worked a second job to save for a down payment. And then interest rates rose. It seems like I'm getting pushed out. I'm getting pushed out of the housing market, and it's, it's becoming impossible for me to build this home that I had in mind for me and my kids. Yesterday, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates another quarter point, part of the effort to battle inflation, of course. William Spriggs is watching all this. He is the chief economist for the AFL-CIO and a former chair of the Howard University Economics Department, where he still teaches. Welcome back to the program, sir. Thank you for having me today. Okay, I get it. The Fed needs to bring down inflation, which also hurts ordinary people. But what's it do to the home buying market when interest rates keep creeping up like this? It makes it harder for people to qualify for loans. The payment you have to make is based on the interest rate. Each increase in the interest rate ups the amount of money you have to pay and disqualifies more people. Is there an upside, though, in that cooling off the economy a bit and raising mortgage interest rates may also bring home prices down? They've been exceptionally high, of course. Well, home prices have been flat. They haven't been increasing as much. Housing costs in general have been dropping. We don't see it as much in the CPI because there's a lag when it shows up in the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, which is mm -hmm. how we measure inflation. But uh, we are going to see results of the fall in housing prices in the next few months show up in, in our measure of inflation. Oh, so you're telling me, I think, that Jasmine may be worried now, the person we heard from a moment ago, but she may have some more hopeful news in a few months. Is that the bottom line here? No, I think she's still in for some turmoil because at hmm. these higher interest rates, people who want to buy a home are still going to be stuck with higher housing payments from those higher interest rates. Okay, so the so the, the, the net for them is worse. Let me ask about a different kind of person. There's a member of our staff who is talking about a home equity line of credit, which lots of people get. They borrow against a house they already have, and there may be a floating interest rate. In this person's case, they were paying 3% on the money they borrowed, and it's now gone up to 8 5% higher. It struck me that there must be a lot of people who may be exposed to much higher payments over the last several months. Yes. There are, and that increase is going to affect their consumption, of course. Oh, which is the point. They're supposed to have less money, according to the Fed. Well, that's the Fed's wish. It's the way of taking money out of the system. Let me ask you about another aspect of this. Of course, you can't pay the mortgage or the home equity loan if you don't have a job. Higher interest rates are meant, in part, to cool off the job market. Um, again, understandable, but people are affected, real people are affected. Are some kinds of people more affected than others in this situation? We're already seeing it. The unemployment rate in the Hispanic community has been going up. And last month, the unemployment rate for black women went up. But this is because the majority of new job entrants are people of color. And their return to the labor market has been spiking ahead of the creation of jobs. And so because despite adding 800,000 jobs in the last two months, we saw the response from the black and Hispanic community be very large in terms of labor force participation increases. 
bigger than the increase in that very good job market. Oh, so you're telling me that there has been, they're, they're the most recent ones who've been hired, which is good, but they may be the first ones to be fired. Well, they're the first ones who don't get a job when the labor market slows down. So the first signs that the labor market is weakening is that net job growth isn't keeping up with the labor force growth. Okay. Bill Spriggs of the AFL-CIO, thanks so much. Thank you. Should the Biden administration ban TikTok in the U.S.? That's what he's threatening if TikTok isn't sold by its Chinese parent company. The social media giant's CEO will face lawmakers on the House Energy and Commerce Committee today. Ahead of the hearing, TikTok CEO Sho Chu posted a video announcing the platform now has over 150 million monthly active users right here in the U.S. I'll be testifying before Congress to share all that we're doing to protect Americans using the app and deliver on our mission to inspire creativity and to bring joy. Now, the concern, some experts say, is that because TikTok is owned by a Chinese company, it could share private data of Americans with China's government or even try to influence American politics. Congresswoman Lori Trahan is a member of the House panel that will question the TikTok CEO later this morning, and she joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Layla. So what do you want to hear from show this morning to quell concerns about national security? Yeah, so I met with Mr. Chu a couple of weeks ago in mm -hmm. advance of today's hearing, and he said something during that meeting that really struck me. He said that TikTok is operating from a place where it has basically no trust and that he wanted to be open and transparent about the problems that exist on his platform and how to fix them. Mm -hmm. Mind you, that's not something that tech CEOs are typically looking to do when they testify before Congress, but today is an opportunity for Mr. Chu to walk the walk. He has a chance to look members of Congress in the eye and answer serious questions about why we should be confident that the steps he's taking are sufficient to protect Americans' data, and that's going to be very important. But it's my hope as a mom of two young girls who are just getting to that social media age that mm -hmm. he goes well beyond that to talk about the serious issues the company faces when it comes to safeguarding children mm -hmm. and the teens who use TikTok. In your view, does TikTok pose a national security threat? Look, I think that's, um, you know, ultimately, I think that's a decision uh, on whether to ban TikTok or force a sale. It's going to come down to the administration, and frankly, the hearing today will be an important input on that. Uh, the administration's been in active negotiations with the company for a long time. If the administration decides to move forward with the ban or forcing a sale, they're going to have to explain in detail why the options that TikTok proposed were insufficient and why there was nothing left to negotiate. But what can't happen is some sort of action on TikTok, whatever that may be, and then folks in Washington declaring victory in the fight to rein in the abuses of dominant tech companies. Because a social media landscape without TikTok isn't any safer for our data, and it certainly isn't safer for our children, who have been viewed as nothing more than the next opportunity to grow tech companies' so profits for a very long time. Is TikTok facing unfair amount and an unfair amount of scrutiny? I mean, there hasn't actually been any evidence that they share data with China's government. I mean, there was this one high-profile uh, incident of a ByteDance employee, the, the, the company that owns TikTok, accessing American user information inappropriately. But there's been no evidence of this other type of conduct that would hurt national security. 
Well, I think there are real national security concerns when it comes to TikTok. It's a company that's based in China and subject to laws that could allow the Chinese government to force TikTok to hand over users' data. Mm -hmm. That's serious. And I don't think there's a single person who listened to the director of the FBI say that the app has some real problems and wrote that off as hyperbole. Yeah. But it would be a mistake to focus solely on the national security threat posed by a company like TikTok. But on that issue, on that issue, would you say the proposal by TikTok to store American data here. Is that enough? We, you know, that warrants a lot more questioning exactly how that happens. How do you wall off data when when posts are shared internationally? How does that work? How does a, a company that or, or the, the storage of data on a server, how does that actually instill confidence that Americans data will be protected and that it won't have um, uh, or, or that the, the Chinese government won't be able to access it? Those are the questions that really need to be answered. And frankly, Um, you know, the administration has to contend with. Democrat Lori Trahan, who represents Massachusetts' 3rd District. Thank you. Thank you. When the sun set last night, the Muslim holy month of Ramadan began, which means that many observant Muslims are fasting today. Muslims believe that this is the month in which God revealed the first verses of the Quran to Muhammad who is considered the final prophet of Islam. So for 30 days, those who observe fast from dawn to dusk. No food, no water, and it's just an exciting time to have a reset, so to speak. Nisa Muhammad is the assistant dean for religious life at Howard University. She says Ramadan is a time to focus on family, prayer, and gratitude for all that you have. While we are fasting from food and drink, there are people who have to fast from food and drink all the time. They don't have access to food. They don't have access to clean water. And so during this process, God wants us to understand you know, what it means to be hungry, what it means to be thirsty. Of course, there are religious exemptions for people over health and travel. If you find that it is too challenging and you have to eat, go ahead. You know, Islam is not meant to be a burden. Abdul Ba is a senior at Howard and a member of the Muslim Student Association. The first time I fasted the entire month of Ramadan, I was, I believe, nine or eight or nine. I was in the... I was in elementary school, and it was a huge thing for me. Ba says Ramadan is about more than just giving up food and water. It focuses on spiritual discipline. We're also amplifying all the good in the religion, amplifying our prayers, making sure our prayers are more intact, or we're more focused, we read more of the Quran, or we, you know, we're on our best behavior, you know. We're not talking bad about anyone, we're not talking down on anything, where, you know, we have a positive outlook on life, and we're focused on what really matters. Ba says he and his friends once organized a fundraiser for a mosque in New York. They set a goal to raise $10,000 and ended up bringing in twice as much. These are kids our age, a little bit older, a little bit younger from our communities, and it's just, it's all in the spirit of Ramadan. They know that that money can help out a lot of people, um, and Ramadan is a time to give, Ramadan is a time to be better than we are before. A time to give, a time to be better than we were before. Words to live by any month of the year, really. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, why experts are worried that new artificial intelligence tools will be used to spread disinformation and propaganda. Right now, it's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. 
Today on Radio Boston, from Nubian Square to the South End, Malcolm X spent years in Boston, learning, listening to jazz, and honing his message. We uncover how neighborhoods here influenced the revolutionary and explore the way the city has and has not embraced him. That's Radio Boston Today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Cloudy today with a high in the low 60s. It'll also be windy. There's a chance of rain this afternoon and this evening. Then tonight, mostly cloudy and still windy. Temperatures fall to a low around 42. Tomorrow, we'll have a partly sunny Friday with a high near 52. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston at 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com slash radio. And from Charles Schwab, with a variety of financial planning options, from online tools to meeting with a financial consultant. Schwab works to make it easy to plan for tomorrow today. More at schwab.com plan. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steven Skeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. More and more artificial intelligence tools are showing up online, and those tools make it possible to create realistic videos, audio, text, and pictures. Think chatbots like ChatGPT and Microsoft Bing, or image generators like Dolly and Midjourney. They represent big advances in AI, but they also raise concerns about supercharged propaganda and influence campaigns by bad actors. NPR Shannon Bond has been looking into this, and a warning, her report contains crude words that have been bleeped. In February, Wharton Business School professor Ethan Mollick posted a video of himself online. I've been studying startups and entrepreneurship for over a decade and have some thoughts on the subject that I would like to share with you today. His delivery is stiff and his mouth moves strangely. But if you don't know him well, you might not think twice until the video dissolves into a slightly different Mollick. My first piece of advice is to focus on solving a real problem for customers. Focus on solving a real problem for customers. Because that first Mollick you heard wasn't Ethan Mollick. It was a deep fake. His words, his voice, and that video were all created by artificial intelligence. It was mostly to see if I could and then realizing that it's so much easier than I thought. Malik teaches about innovation, and lately he's gotten really into these new tools that anyone can now use to create highly plausible images, text, audio, and video. He's excited about AI's potential to change the way we work and help us be more creative, but he's also wary. So he decided to fake himself. To start, he had ChatGPT write a speech about entrepreneurship. Next, he turned to a tool that can clone a voice from a short audio clip. So I gave it a minute of me talking about some unrelated topic like cheese. 
And finally, he fed that audio and a photo of himself into another AI app. And it realistically moves the mouth around and moves the eyes around and makes you shrug. And that was all I needed. This deep fake was quick, easy, and cheap. Malik says it took about $11 and just eight minutes to make. And by the end, I had me, fake me, giving a fake lecture I've never given in my life, but sounds like me, in my fake voice. Malik posted his experiment online as a demonstration and a warning that the risks from this kind of AI are not in the distant future. They're already here. It's not going to convince anyone who knows me, but it's also at first glance, uh, something that you may actually believe in. And that was these models a month ago, and they're already advanced past that point. Concerns about deep fakes have been around for a while. But what's different now is that pretty much anyone can make them easily. People are having fun using them for jokes and memes. But they're also already being used for political ends. Jack Posobiec, a right-wing influencer known for promoting the Pizzagate conspiracy theory, recently created a fake video of President Biden announcing a draft to send American soldiers to Ukraine. The illegal Russian offensive has been swift, callous, and brutal. While Posobiec explained the video was a fake created by AI, he also described it as... A sneak preview, coming attractions, a glimpse into the world beyond. And many people went on to share the video without a disclaimer that it's not really Biden. Late last year, the research firm Graphica identified the first known case of a state-backed influence campaign using deepfakes. They found pro-China bots sharing fake news videos featuring AI-generated anchors on Facebook and Twitter. Meanwhile, scammers are using fake audio to steal money by posing as family members in crisis. Gary Marcus is a cognitive scientist at NYU who studies AI. He says we're not prepared for what it means to live in a world full of AI-generated content. The information ecosphere is going to get polluted. He fears widespread access to this technology will further erode our ability to trust anything we see online. A bad actor can take one of these tools and use this to make unimaginable amounts of really plausible almost terrifying misinformation that the average person is not going to recognize as misinformation. Marcus and others following the rapid rollout of AI to the public are particularly concerned about powerful tools that create text, the technology behind the Bing and ChatGPT chatbots. They can generate news articles, essays, Twitter posts, and conversations that sound like they were written by real people. Josh Goldstein, a research fellow at Georgetown, says this kind of AI is a natural tool for propaganda. Using a language model, propagandists can create lots and lots of original text, and they can do it quickly and at little cost. What's more, researchers have found AI-created content can be really convincing. You can generate persuasive propaganda even if you're not entirely fluent in English, or even if you don't know the idioms of your target community. Generated text can also be harder to detect than faked video or audio. Online campaigns that use AI to write posts may appear to be more organic than the copy and paste messages usually associated with bots. And even if AI written content is not always successful at persuasion, for propagandists, that's a feature, not a bug, says Marcus. He worries the profusion of generated text will amplify what's called the fire hose of falsehood, a propaganda strategy that indiscriminately sprays out false and often contradictory messages. There's also the famous phrase, I don't know if I can say on the air, but you can bleep it, of flooding the zone with from Steve Bannon. If you want to 
flood the zone with there is no better tool than this. To be clear, researchers have not yet identified a propaganda or influence campaign using generated text. The tech companies launching AI tools are scrambling to put guardrails in place to prevent abuse. But there are open source versions these companies don't control. At least one powerful AI language tool made by Facebook parent Meta leaked online, where it was quickly posted to the anonymous message board 4chan. Ethan Mollick, the professor who deepfaked himself, worries none of this will slow Silicon Valley's rush to incorporate AI into more and more products. But I think that the speed at which the cat has come out of the bag and we're all dealing with cats everywhere is a pretty big one. For now, the race is heating up. This week, Google launched its own AI chatbot to the public. Shannon Bond, NPR News. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Coming up here on Morning Edition, what the U.S. sale of nuclear submarines to Australia may mean for the future of the South Pacific. And coming up at 8, the onslaught of storms that's devastated California has helped address the drought there. But environmentalists say it isn't over. It's 729. Coming to City Space on Monday, March 27. March for Our Lives co-founder David Hogg discusses the five-year anniversary of the Parkland school shooting. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington with Clyde's. The joyous comedy from Pulitzer recipient Lynn Nottage at The Huntington, March 24th through April 23rd, huntingtontheater.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The war in Ukraine and gang violence in Haiti are expected to be among the issues when President Biden travels to Ottawa for talks with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Biden is also scheduled to address the country's parliament before returning to the White House tomorrow. NPR's Franco Ordonez says the Biden administration wants Canada to lead a multinational force to help stabilize Haiti. There's a lot of concerns about the United States overseeing some of these military forces. And Canada has this long-standing relationship. And they were open to that possibility. Trudeau is now kind of pouring cold water over the idea. Last week, he spoke out against it, saying outside intervention doesn't work. The Securities and Exchange Commission is accusing cryptocurrency entrepreneur Justin Sun of manipulating the market and not properly registering currencies. NPR's Marie Andrusevich says eight celebrity endorsers are also charged. The SEC charged actor Lindsay Lohan, as well as the rapper Soulja Boy, among other celebrities, for, quote, illegally touting the currencies without disclosing that they were compensated. All but two of the celebrities agreed to pay more than $400,000 in fines without admitting or denying the SEC's charges. Wall Street futures are higher this morning. S&P futures are up 17 points. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
Two companies plan to close their urgent care centers in western Massachusetts. Shields Health and Bay State Health are stopping urgent care service in Feeding Hills, Longmeadow, and Westfield. The centers are scheduled to close next Friday. The companies tell MassLive they aren't sure if ER visits at hospitals in the area will go up as a result. The Boston City Council is taking the next step toward a plan that would shine a spotlight on the city's banned landlords. The ordinance would create a public list of landlords with six or more code violations in a year. During a discussion yesterday, the council sent the proposal to committee for further review. City Councilor Ruthie Louisienne says city housing rules should be enforced in every neighborhood. If a driver is going too fast, that driver gets a ticket. If that driver keeps on getting those speeding tickets, the RMV will take away that license. Those individuals who routinely and habitually receive code violations for their properties might need to have their license or ability to do business with the city taken away. Landlords on the list would also be banned from doing business with the city. The first geothermal greenhouse in Massachusetts is now open in East Boston. Eastie Farms director Conan Thirovengadam says he hopes the zero-emission building can set the standard for the region. It is also constructed in an environmental justice, climate justice community. To have something so cool and good that serves the community and stands as a demonstration of climate friendliness in a neighborhood like this is amazing. When Eastie Farms opened in 2015, it grew food in a vacant lot between two buildings and now runs seven gardens around East Boston. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. The Bruins will face off against Montreal tonight at the Garden. Teams will hit the ice at 7 p.m. The Celtics have the night off. They'll host the Pacers tomorrow at the Garden. We'll have overcast skies today with high temperatures in the low 60s. There's a chance of rain this afternoon. Cloudy tonight with a chance of showers before about 10 p.m. Temperatures will fall to the low 40s. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high in the low 50s. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fodil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. When China's president visited Russia this week, he was cementing one of his country's few important alliances in the world. The United States has a lot of alliances that it tries to organize against China. This month, the U.S. advanced an arms deal and a lot more with both the U.K. and Australia. They're moving forward with a sale of nuclear-powered submarines to Australia. Charles Edel has an idea how important this deal is. He works for a Washington, D.C. think tank, although when we reached him, he was away from the office. I'm in New York chaperoning a bunch of 10-year-olds at Model UN. One question, are they discussing the recent submarine deal between the U.S., U.K. and Australia? Well, we have one precocious 10-year-old who is holding forth Gabon's position about how he supports it. Yes. 
I didn't know that Gabon has a view, but I'm glad to hear. Charles Dell of the Center for Strategic and International Studies told us he could help analyze that deal so long as we finished in time for him to meet the kids he was supervising. Submarines are only at the tip of the iceberg here. We're also talking about a series of collaborations in cyber, in artificial intelligence, in quantum, in unmanned underwater vehicles, a host of different technologies. Why does the United States care that much about Australia? The Australians like to say, and we tend to agree, that they're just about our most trusted ally in the world. And because they've been leaned on so heavily by Beijing in terms of economic coercion, we're really interested in what they're doing. While America has a ton of allies and even more partners around the world, we have a much narrower list of those who are both capable and willing to make sure that they step up to provide stability for the region. Assuming this deal works as intended, it'll take many years for all the submarines to be delivered. What does the United States ultimately get out of it? We're going to start by putting more U.S. and British submarines in the region. We're then going to sell some submarines. And eventually, we're going to transition to the Australians building their own submarines based on a British model. But ultimately, what we're hoping to achieve is to have a much stronger ally and Having stronger allies overall enhances our collective deterrence efforts, our collective security, and will help stabilize a region that over the past decade has been badly destabilized by China's increasingly aggressive actions. What form does that take and what is China trying to do? Well, there are a lot of different forms it takes. For the Australians, the one that has stuck out most for them is that starting in 2020, the Chinese began to attempt to economically coerce Australia. Australia is the most trade-dependent advanced nation in the world on China. As much as 40% of their exports went to China hmm. at one point. And because the Chinese were upset with Australia, they began stopping the import of Australian goods across the board. Beyond that, of course, the Chinese have consistently uh, interfered in the domestic politics of Australia, reaching into their ethnic communities, attempting to bribe Australian politicians. But it's the larger set of things that I think on the military side that we're concerned about. The explosive growth of the Chinese military and the increasingly aggressive use that it's been put to in the broader Indo-Pacific region. When you say going into the ethnic communities in China, are you referring to the Chinese diaspora? Where you'll find Chinese people in many, many places and China wants to use them as an asset, you think? Yeah, consistently we've seen the Chinese state has worked to coerce citizens of Australia who are ethnically Chinese, who express viewpoints that are contrary to the Chinese government. I think a wake-up moment in Australia was when a visiting Chinese official told Labor Party officials that they needed to support an extradition law uh, with China. If they didn't, it would be too bad if the entire Chinese population in Australia started to vote against the Labor Party. As best you can determine the motivations of Chinese leaders, do you think that they view Australia as a country they should move out of the U.S. column and into the Chinese column, that it should be dominated by China because it's right there, in Chinese terms anyway, uh, in their region? I think from Beijing's perspective, Australia is a bit of a puzzling case because it's a smaller state and because they have prospered it doesn't exactly make sense from a Chinese perspective why the Australians have asserted their own sovereignty uh, quite so strongly. And frankly, I think the reason why you've seen such anger 
emanating from Beijing is not so much what Australia has done, but the fact that Australia as a middle-sized democratic power has set an alternative example about how states can stand up, protect their own sovereignty, and not simply buck to the demands of the Chinese state. Charles Edel of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me on, Steve. The White House says it has grave concerns and may consider economic penalties for Uganda over extreme actions against people in the LGBTQ plus community. Lawmakers in the East African country have passed a bill to criminalize identifying as LGBTQ plus with penalties that include life imprisonment or even the death penalty. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports. Loud cheers and celebration fill the packed chamber of Uganda's parliament. An overwhelming majority passed among the toughest anti-gay laws in the world late on Tuesday night. And ruling party MPs like Musa Ekweru echoed the sentiments of many in the chamber. In our country, we will have our morals. We will protect our children. Same-sex acts were already criminal in Uganda under British colonial era laws. But rhetoric by political and religious leaders has seen queer identity increasingly framed as a threat to family, with many spurious reports of young people being indoctrinated by gay ideology. And on the streets of the capital Kampala, many like Abdul Mukasa support stronger measures. God created man and woman and we cannot accept one sex to go on the same sex. If signed into law by President Yoweri Museveni, same-sex relations would remain punishable with up to life imprisonment. So-called aggravated homosexuality, which includes sex with someone who has HIV, could incur the death penalty. The law would also punish anyone who even identifies as gay or queer, and potentially people or rights groups seem to promote or support LGBTQ plus identity. The LGBTI community is basically being told, you can't raise your head, you can't be seen, you can't be heard. Richard Lusimbo is a Ugandan activist and says the legislation is a result of pressure, both from within and outside of the country. From the very start, this whole bill coming into Uganda was because of the, for example, American evangelicals who would come to Uganda. And what's happening in Uganda is not just an isolation. A similar bill was struck down by the courts in 2014 on procedural grounds. This time, Museveni is again expected to adopt the law. And again, a legal challenge is likely to determine its fate. Emmanuel Akimutu, NPR News, Lagos. This is NPR News. Coming up next on Morning Edition, California may soon become the first state to ban discrimination based on the Hindu caste system. And in our next hour, we learn about the accidental release of photos of thousands of L.A. police officers. In your forecast, low 60s and windy today under mostly cloudy skies. We may see some rain showers this afternoon. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 40s, and this evening we might see some rain again. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds. It'll be in the low 50s. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Office of the Provost, presenting the acclaimed novelist Marilyn Robinson, April 11th at 6.30 p.m. in the Photonics Building. Admission is free. Reservations are required at robinsonbu.eventbrite.com. A Massachusetts business trade group says the Federal Reserve's decision to raise interest rates by a quarter point should not hurt the state's economy. 
Chris Gearin is vice president of Associated Industries of Massachusetts. He says the series of rate hikes have a lesser effect on the state's largest industries. Increased interest rates raise the price of borrowing and certainly affect certain industries more than others. But for manufacturing companies, for biotechnology companies, it's been something to watch, but nothing that folks consider a real crisis at this point. Guerin says the Massachusetts economy grew more quickly than the national average at the end of last year. And he says local business leaders overall are optimistic about the economy. Cambridge-based Cognito Therapeutics says it's getting $73 million to fund a device it hopes will help slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease. The headset device covers a person's eyes and ears while delivering light to stimulate brain activity. Previous studies show it helps slow cognitive decline in Alzheimer's patients. Cognito says the latest money will fund more studies of the device. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with The Confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama, available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere, designed to assist those working from home. More at RemotePC.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Seattle, as we have reported, is the first American city to protect people against discrimination based on caste. California could become the first state. NPR's Sandia Dirks reports. When Rita Meher immigrated to America over two decades ago, she kept her caste a secret. This is very personal for me. That's Meher speaking in February at a Seattle City Council meeting about finally coming out of the caste closet just the month before. I publicly came out as an Adivasi. Adivasis are indigenous tribal communities who face untouchability along with Dalits. Caste is a hierarchical system of power found in South Asian cultures and religions, and it's complicated. Adivasis like Meher are so far at the bottom as to kind of be outside the caste system, while Dalits are the lowest caste, the ones that used to be called untouchables. Meher says the reason she got so emotional at that council meeting... It just hit me, the years of oppression and the racism or discrimination I had faced, it just got released. I felt free. Schools like Brandeis, UC Davis, and the whole California State University system have added caste as a protected category in recent years. Now, State Senator Aisha Wahab wants to add California to that list. She says as we become more diverse, we have to understand discrimination exists in other cultures, too. A lot of back-home politics are getting in the way of the full potential of an individual. Wahab's district is right in Silicon Valley. South Asians make up a growing number of tech workers, and tech has become a major center for these conversations about caste and casteism. Caste is complex. 
as a socio-historical phenomenon. That's Tanmori Sandararajan. She's a Dalit activist and the founder of Equality Labs, which is front and center in the fight for caste equity. But the things that caste-oppressed people are complaining about are very obviously civil rights and labor violations, open usage of slurs, bullying in the workplace, sexual harassment. Sandararajan says you don't need to fully understand caste to understand it's a system of oppression. But not everyone agrees with that. Pushpita Prasad is with the Coalition of Hindus of North America, or KONA. She says there are bad apples, and individual people might discriminate. All of us talked about personal stories of discrimination and struggle. But is it systemic? Prasad says no. She says adding caste as a protected category singles out the religion most associated, Hinduism. When you start to say that one set of people behave differently from all other sets of people, that's the definition of racism. Her fellow Kona member, Sudha Jagannathan, is Bahujan from a lower caste. She says caste isn't the issue that proponents of the bill claim it to be, not in America and not back in India. My own experience, never faced caste. My family was too poor to practice caste or be oppressed by somebody else. She says these anti-discrimination laws are Hindu-phobic. It's picking on us with things that do not apply to us in our American lives, forcing us to acknowledge that we are casteists. Who are they? But then Mori Sandararajan says it's not Hindu-phobic to talk about the realities of caste. It only impacts people that discriminate. If you're not a bigot, it doesn't bother you. As California takes up this legislation to ban caste discrimination, the battle over who gets to define caste in the United States and whether it's systemic will continue. Sandhya Dirks, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Another hour of Morning Edition is still ahead. Then at 11, it's Radio Boston, and Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning. And I understand earlier this morning, national story on chatbots, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So we're going to kind of pick up that thread. Uh, it's Tech Talk with the Boston Globe's technology writer, Hiawatha Bray, today oh on love. our show. Yep, and he's a blast to talk to. Mm-hmm. He is looking at the new generation of this open AI sort of chat GPT is 4.0. It's been 3.5. One of the things they're experimenting with is an app for people who are vision impaired where the app and the, the chat bot mm-hmm. right, can read uh, pictures of in the environment and provide useful help. So please tell me, is the red shirt on the right or on the left? Mm. Uh, I need to get to the right train platform. Here's a picture of the map. Walk me, guide me to the correct train platform. That's amazing. Right, it is. The possibilities for people who are vision impaired uh, uh, is amazing. It also continues to raise questions about the power of something like that, which could then be hacked and used nefariously to send someone the wrong place, right, et cetera. So... You know, it's that continuing walk on the edge of the double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating to look at. Yeah. I'd also be curious to know what he thinks about BARD. Have you heard about that? Google's new AI Oh, right. I should ask. I'm on the wait list, so Mm, we'll find out. (laughs) Thank you, TCI. Thanks, Rupa. That's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 7.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Waterstone Lexington, a new luxury independent and assisted living community with social and wellness programs and fine dining next to Belmont Country Club. WaterstoneLexington.com. 
In a few weeks, the main stage at the music festival Coachella will feature an artist singing entirely in Arabic. And Eliana is not the only Arab musician blowing up right now. What's different this time around is that, you know, these artists are kind of using an updated sound. Arabic music is on the brink of a global breakthrough. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Falden. This school year is expected to set a record for books that are banned by public school libraries. And most often the books that are getting banned discuss sex, sexuality, or race. As the books leave the library shelves, activists are finding creative ways to distribute them outside of schools. NPR's Tobia Smith has been looking into this. And we want to warn you this report includes mentions of thoughts of suicide. It's hard to overstate how quickly a school ban can bring an unhappy ending to the shelf life of a book. This is one case where that old line that there's no such thing as bad publicity is more the exception than the rule. I get a lot of like, oh, your book's been banned. Congratulations. It's going to be a bestseller now. But that's not what happens to 999 out of 1,000 books. Ilana K. Arnold saw several of her books, like Red Hood and What Girls Are Made Of, banned for sexually explicit scenes that critics call pornography. She calls that a gross misrepresentation, but her book sales plummeted. It's a huge hit. And I think because in a library, kids can stumble across something. They didn't know they needed until they picked it up and read it. But if something is missing, you don't know it's not there. For most books, it's just a quiet disappearance. New numbers from the free speech group PEN America show those disappearances are happening even more frequently this school year than last, when there were some 2,500 instances of book bans in U.S. schools. Most of those books were race and LGBTQ related. It's why many people are now taking it upon themselves to get those books back where young readers will see them outside of school. A new banned book, Nook, recently opened inside a Ben & Jerry's ice cream shop in Melbourne, Florida, lending out about 150 books on day one. It was set up by Florida teacher Adam Tritt and the group he started, Foundation 451, after he was ordered to remove banned books from his classroom in nearby Palm Bay. My reaction was, uh, no, I cannot allow this to happen. If the kid needs this book, we want them to have it. Tritt has already lent or given away nearly 2,000 banned books at a flower shop, street fairs, rallies, and road races. It's been a lifeline, he says. One family came in with a trans teenager and picked up This Book is Gay and just cried. And their father held them, and they both just thanked us so much. They didn't know this book existed. Hi. How are you? Thais Perkins, who owns Reverie Books in Austin, Texas, is one of many booksellers also giving books away. She covers some of the cost herself and raises the rest. On a whim, I put on Twitter, hey, is anybody feeling extra Christmassy? And I woke up in the morning with $1,400 in an account. Around the nation, there's a growing number of similar giveaways, pop-up libraries, little free libraries packed with banned books, and even a banned bookmobile. Chris Finnan heads the National Coalition Against Censorship. What we are beginning to see after a year and a half of really kind of being back on our heels is that the opposition is growing, that the other side is overreaching, and it's making people mad, and they're getting active. Including students themselves. What really got to me was two books that completely transformed my life. 
were suddenly on a banned book list. And it kind of felt like a stab to the gut. 18-year-old high school senior Oliver Sterling from St. George, Utah, says a school librarian recommended the books to him when he was struggling with his sexuality and fighting thoughts of suicide. Now he's raising money to slip books like those into little free libraries all over town. If I can give one kid a book that helps that kid, that lets them know that they're not alone, that would make everything worth it. Of course, tech-savvy kids who know the banned book they want can also find it online. So if we search The Bluest Eye, which has recently been banned in Florida. It takes 16-year-old L. Meltretter yeah. from Florida about a nanosecond on Google to find a pirated copy of Toni Morrison's debut novel. Right here. There it is. Yeah. You can say you ban books all you want, but you can never really ban them because they're everywhere. Banned books are also available legally through library apps and, for example, from the Brooklyn Public Library's Books Unbanned program that's now lending to teens anywhere in the nation. Heather Hall from Oklahoma says she's thrilled that her 12-year-old daughter, who's exploring her sexuality, can access not only books, but also a librarian who can talk with her freely. She was so encouraging and so sweet to her. It's just been really huge to have access to the conversations with adults that are very accepting. I started crying. Others are also filling in the gap, not only for the books that have been banned, but also for the teachers and librarians who've effectively been gagged. Heather Fleming's Missouri nonprofit has distributed thousands of free banned books. She recently started including a kind of curriculum with shipments of Nicole Hannah-Jones's book, The 1619 Project, that explores slavery and racism in America. We owe it to our kids to give them all the tools that they need in order to be full citizens of America. And so we're just hoping to continue to build even more. It hasn't gone unnoticed by groups demanding book bans that the more books are pulled from school shelves, the more they pop up elsewhere, like a game of whack-a-mole. 100% it concerns me. I think it's so messed up that so many people want to show children all this explicit graphic content. But Tiffany Justice, co-founder of Moms for Liberty, says the group's singular focus is controlling books in schools where kids can't avoid them. Personally, she says, she hopes prosecutors will crack down on what she calls illegal distribution of pornography. They better be careful because we have federal obscenity laws. Adults are not allowed to show children pornography. So the idea that somehow this is some virtuous effort to distribute graphic sexual violence, pedophilia, I think the law will deal with them accordingly. For their part, activists behind the guerrilla giveaways say they're undeterred. Plans are already underway for two more Ben and Jerry's banned book nooks in Florida. But ultimately, activist Adam Tritt concedes ad hoc efforts like his are just a band-aid. Books need to be in schools, he says, not only because many students lack the Internet access or means to find them elsewhere, but also, Tritt says, because of the message it sends. If it's not in the schools... They're taking away representation. And when these kids don't see themselves, they're being further marginalized. As one publisher summed it up, buying banned books and giving them away is a fine act of protest, but he'd rather see more people speaking up at school committee meetings and voting. That, he says, is a much better bet. Tovia Smith, NPR News. If you or someone you know is in crisis, you can call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Just those three numbers, 988. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, building healthy, high-performance homes for families and for the future, supporting the 15th Annual MIT Sustainability Summit, focusing on demystifying carbon markets, April 28th. Learn more at sustainabilitysummit.mit.edu and thoughtforms-corp.com. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUR. WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. U.S. lawmakers are criticizing the Fed for its decision to raise interest rates by a quarter point, despite the risk of more turmoil in the banking sector. It's Thursday, March 23rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden is making his first official state visit to Canada. He and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau are expected to discuss the war in Ukraine and the flow of migrants across the northern U.S. border. Also, the series of storms that have flooded California has many wondering if the drought there is finally over. Experts say the answer is complicated. One wet season helps, but you would need, we would need several wet seasons in a row. And this hour, the accidental release of photos of undercover Los Angeles police officers to a watchdog website. In sports, March Madness resumes with the Sweet 16. It'll be cloudy and in the low 60s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The CEO of video sharing app TikTok testifies before a congressional committee today. Lawmakers and the Biden administration are worried that TikTok, owned by a Chinese company, could be forced to share the data of Americans with the Chinese government. TikTok says it's taking steps to prevent that. NPR's Bobby Allen says the company plans to route all U.S. data to domestic servers owned and operated by an American company. Oracle, they're a software giant based in Austin, Texas. They would be the ones hosting Americans' data. TikTok says this plan is going to ensure that any Beijing-based employees will not be able to get Americans' data. And the Chinese government, if they wanted to see what was going on with Americans' accounts, that they would not be able to. This is basically a very expensive firewall. NPR's Bobby Allen reporting. Critics say that American firewall for TikTok still will not be enough to protect data. Secretary of State Antony Blinken returns to Capitol Hill today. It's for a second day of budget hearings that have, so far, focused mostly on China and Russia. He's likely to face some tough questions in the House today about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The House Foreign Affairs Committee chairman Michael McCall has been looking into what he calls the Biden administration's catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan, and he's been frustrated that the State Department has been slow to produce the documents he's seeking. Secretary Blinken says the administration is spending time studying the lessons learned. I am uh, committed and determined to make that information available uh, to, uh, to Congress, and we will do that. Um, we will do that um, by uh, mid-April. He's also trying to reassure lawmakers that the budget includes funds to resettle more Afghans who helped the U.S. during the war. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The city of Miami Beach, Florida, has declared a state of emergency from now through Monday. This comes ahead of the crowds that are expected for spring break weekend. 
From member station WLRN, Veronica Saragovia reports the action follows two deadly shootings and stampedes last weekend. In addition to the recent shooting deaths, Miami Beach's city manager cited arrests for aggravated assault, robberies, and drugs for declaring a state of emergency this weekend. Measures to control crowds include banning sales of alcohol for off-premise consumption and closing some parking garages early in the popular South Beach neighborhood where spring break crowds gather. Earlier this week, some commissioners said they don't support a curfew because it will affect visitors heading to an electronic music festival called Ultra in nearby Miami. For NPR News, I'm Veronica Saragovia in Miami Beach. You're listening to NPR News. From Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. The number of Boston Public Schools graduates going directly to college after graduation is falling. That's one finding in a new report prepared by the Boston Foundation and the Boston Private Industry Council. It says roughly half of Boston Public Schools 2021 graduates went directly to college. That's down from nearly 70 percent in 2017. The report also found stark disparities in college completion, as WBUR's Max Larkin reports. In Boston's high school class of 2015, 80 percent of white female graduates who enrolled in college completed it by 2021. Only around 3 in 10 black and Latino males did the same. Joe McLaughlin, who prepared the report, says that disparity has deep structural roots. White students are likelier to attend exam schools that put them on the college track from the start. A lot of the explanation is how we're kind of sorted into both the high schools within Boston, but then also when graduates move on to post-secondary, the types of colleges that they're attending as well. McLaughlin blamed pandemic effects for the recent dip in rates of students going to college. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The Boston Public School Committee is giving the green light to a new bus contract. Members approved the five-year deal without debate in a four-to-zero vote with with one member abstaining. The contract is with TransDev, which is the district's current transportation provider. The company has been criticized for the number of buses arriving late. The contract provides incentives to drivers for being on time. The $17.5 million deal is now set to go into effect this summer. More migrant and homeless families are living in hotels in Massachusetts. State data show that number has jumped more than 50 percent in the past three months. The state is legally obligated to provide emergency housing due to its right to shelter law. State officials say the shelter system is being stretched thin with the housing crisis and an uptick in migration to this area. The CEO of Cambridge-based Moderna is defending his company's plans to more than quadruple the price for its COVID-19 vaccine. Stefan Bensel testified before the Senate's Health Committee yesterday. He says the price hike is the result of the federal government's decision to end the pandemic emergency in May. When that happens, he says vaccines will be sold primarily to insurance companies rather than the government. Until now, the U.S. government has purchased and distributed the vaccine. Now Moderna, a small company, must ensure that anyone who wants a vaccine can get one at a location convenient to them. With this role comes increased complexity and increased risk. Moderna says it needs to charge more because it will now assume the financial risks for distribution and wasted doses. It's 8.07. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Bruins fans will descend on the garden to watch the team play the Montreal Canadiens. The puck drops tonight at 7 p.m. The Celtics have the night off before returning, before returning to their home court. The team will host the Pacers tomorrow evening. Cloudy skies today with a chance of rain starting around noon. We'll also have some gusty winds. High temperatures will be in the low 60s. Tonight, rain possible before 9 p.m. and the windy weather will continue overnight. We'll have low temperatures in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, partly sunny and breezy. Expect temperatures to reach the low 50s. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston at 807. WBUR supporters include the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. More heavy rain fell on California this week. It was the 12th time this winter that an atmospheric river doused the state. All that water has people wondering if the drought is finally over. Lauren Summer with NPR's Climate Desk tells us it's not quite that simple. Ask a California water expert if the drought is done, and usually you'll get a chuckle. (laughs) All righty. So, yeah. Mike Anderson is California's state climatologist. Wow. We've seen some pretty fantastic wet weather, and we've seen conditions improve. In a whole lot of places, we still have some lingering impacts that challenge California. Basically, it's complicated. There has been a lot of rain. Snowpack in the Sierra Nevada is the deepest ever recorded in many places. Rivers are full. So Ellen Hannock of the Public Policy Institute of California says it's looking pretty good if you focus on the reservoirs. Now they are pretty full and we're going to be managing flood flows in some parts of the state. But drought is about more than how much rain California gets because parts of the state get water from far away. The Colorado River supplies Los Angeles, San Diego and a lot of farmers. Reservoirs on that river just keep dropping. That system has been in a long term drought for over 20 years now and really looking at emergency cutbacks. The seven states that rely on the river are negotiating those cutbacks now, which could reduce California's water supply. The second reason the drought isn't fully gone has to do with what's underground. When there hasn't been enough water in reservoirs, cities and farmers have pumped water from aquifers instead. Graham Fogg, a professor emeritus of hydrology at the University of California, Davis, says that's created a huge deficit. The fact that these are such huge volumes of water allows them to take a lot of abuse and to be depleted, you know, year after year. Before all this rain, some groundwater wells in the Central Valley were at their lowest point ever recorded. One wet season helps, but you would need, we would need several wet seasons in a row. And the communities that depend on groundwater are still feeling the impacts. We're not out of a drought. Susanna Deanda is executive director of the Community Water Center, an organization that works on environmental justice in the Central Valley. In the past three years, more than 2,000 household wells went dry in California, many in low-income communities of color. Well, many families in the Central Valley lost water completely. That meant that the state had to organize and coordinate efforts to bring in tanked water, bottled water, as an emergency, as an interim solution for many families. 
The state is now trying to get groundwater use under control. Regions are coming up with plans for stopping overpumping, but they won't be fully in place till 2040. In California, the human right to water was passed in 2012. Unfortunately, to this day, many Californians don't have that reality, and it's important to recognize that. And finally, as Ellen Hannock says, Californians should never get too comfortable. We always have to be ready. Drier times could come again as soon as next year. A hotter climate means extremes get more extreme in California, including drier droughts. That means saving water now is still important. Even when drought is over, a drought mindset shouldn't be. Lauren Summer, NPR News. President Biden visits Canada starting today. He will meet Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, and address Canada's parliament. And here's one big thing they'll discuss, migration. The U.S. and Canada are leading nations in the Western Hemisphere, and both are talking about how to stabilize a neighbor, Haiti, which they care about in part because people flee that troubled country for both the U.S. and Canada. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez will be traveling with the president, and he's with us on this early morning. Franco, good morning. Good morning, Steve. So when it comes to Haiti, at least, what is the problem the U.S. and Canada are trying to address? Well, I mean, it's a difficult situation in Haiti. There's right now, there's very little security apparatus, and gangs have essentially taken over Port-au-Prince. I mean, people are really living in fear. And Haiti and the United Nations, they want international peacekeepers to help bolster the police. And the U.S. agrees and has been pushing for a military force. Okay, do they agree on how to deploy those those militaries? I mean, it doesn't look that way. I mean, the U.S. actually wants Canada to lead that effort. You know, Canada has a long relationship with Haiti, and the U.S. is very interested in someone taking the care. There's a lot of concerns about the United States overseeing uh, some of these military forces, and Canada um, has this long-standing relationship, and they were actually first open to that possibility. But hmm. Trudeau is now kind of pouring cold water over the idea. Last week, he actually uh, spoke out against it, saying outside intervention doesn't work. I talked with Henri Paul Normandin. He's a former Canadian ambassador to Haiti. And he says the job is just so big, the chances of success are really uncertain, and the risks are too great. The political conditions on the ground to host such a mission are not there. So put all of that together, and Canada said, hmm, I'm not sure that we want to do this. I'm glad that he mentions the political conditions. He's, of course, talking about the political conditions in Haiti. Would people be receptive to an outside Canadian-led force? But I want to ask about political conditions in two other countries, the United States and Canada, where migration and immigration are constantly hot-button issues. How much is the concern in the U.S. and Canada driven by the fact that people flee Haiti and come to the U.S. and Canada? I mean, Steve, I mean, the, the concern is about instability in Haiti, especially Canada. You know, we talked a little bit about the links. Uh, they share French as a language. There's this strong Haitian diaspora in Canada. You know, as the ambassador told me, Canada cares about Haiti. But no question that immigration plays a role and a big role. And as you note, it's a big political challenge for both leaders. You know, we've talked many times about Haitian migrants being part of this new wave of migration to the southern border of the United States. The administration has unveiled some new policies that allow some Haitians to arrive illegally but can still turn away most who don't apply for asylum in other countries. 
We talked about also how Republicans love to attack Biden on immigration. You know, and opposition politicians are doing the same in Canada now as they experience a dramatic surge. I spoke with Eric Miller, who is an advisor to the Canadian government. He says the problems at the Canadian border have fueled all kinds of rumors and uncomfortable accusations. The migration crisis is something which is roiling Canada at the moment, and this is starting to impact the political support for a pragmatic immigration system in Canada. You know, and they want Trudeau, when he speaks with Biden, to renegotiate a treaty that they say has driven more immigration. And he's expected to bring that up when he talks with Biden. NPR's Frank Ordonez, thanks so much for coming by. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Back in 1997, there was an episode of Friends about just how hard it can be to cancel something like a gym membership. They make you go all the way down there. (laughs) Then they use all these phrases and peppiness to try to confuse you. Now companies do the same online. I tried to cancel a magazine and online subscription, and there were so many versions of, are you sure you want to cancel, that I kept forgetting to complete the process, and I kept paying for the subscription. Enter the Federal Trade Commission. The agency is proposing a new rule today to make it easier for Americans to cancel recurring charges on things like gym memberships and online subscriptions. They're calling the provision Click to Cancel. Lena Khan is chair of the FTC, and she joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. So, Lena, what exactly does this rule do? So this rule really fights back about what you were just describing. All too often, we've seen that when consumers are looking to cancel a subscription, companies impose all sorts of obstacles that are really designed to trap you into the subscription. Mm. And so that's what the FTC's proposed rule would fight back against. Um, It would really say that companies are not able to manipulate consumers into paying for subscriptions that they don't want. And the idea is simple. So for any product or service the rule would say that it's it should be as easy to cancel as it is to sign up. So if you were able to subscribe online, you need to be able to cancel online using the same number of steps. Uh, if you open an account over the phone, you need to be able to close it over the phone without suffering through you know endless hold music mm-hmm. or sales pitch. And so really the rule is saying companies need to make it as easy to cancel as it is to sign up. I mean, because sometimes I even subscribe to things by accident, having no idea that I'm paying for something new. But how do you enforce that? What are the penalties if a, if, if a company doesn't adhere to this new rule? So there would be civil penalties that kick in. Uh, so $50,000 per violation per day. Uh, and, you know, when you're talking about companies that have hundreds or thousands or millions of, of consumers, um, that can add up quite quickly. Mm-hmm. The rule would also enable us to actually get back money for consumers that were harmed by these tactics. So we'd be able to get redress and make sure that anybody who's been tricked or trapped would be able to get that money back. You just noted something really important, which is sometimes consumers are trapped in these subscriptions, but sometimes they're actually tricked or manipulated into signing up in the first place. Mm. And that's something that the FTC's work has also found and something that this rule would also be addressing. So our rule would require that businesses need to disclose key terms like when the trial period ends, when the deadline to cancel is, before collecting any billing information, and companies are prohibited from engaging in these dark patterns where they're really using manipulative design techniques to try to trick people into signing up in the first place. How big of a problem is this that it led to this rule now? This is a big problem. 
the FTC receives tens of thousands of complaints about being tricked or trapped into subscriptions. And it's something that we've seen through our enforcement work as well. So the FTC has for years now been bringing lawsuits against these practices, but unfortunately the practice has persisted and that's what's leading us to now move forward with this rule. Are there any exceptions to this rule? I mean, I'm thinking of like your cable bill, your phone bill that you commit to for years in a contract. So it's a great question. So, you know, our rule would require that sellers provide an annual reminder to consumers, and it would also allow companies to still give you the option of getting a better deal. Mm -hmm. um, it would just require that they affirmatively give you the ability to reject that. So if a customer service representative says, I understand you're looking to cancel, would you like the opportunity to get a better deal? And the consumer would get to say, yes, actually, I'd like to see that, or no, I just want to cancel. Lena Khan is chair of the FTC. Thank you. Thanks. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, a retired Air Force pilot who bombed Iraq in the shock and awe campaign 20 years ago talks with a woman who was on the ground in Baghdad during that campaign. And in 20 minutes, we look at how efforts in Turkey to recover from recent earthquakes may impact preparations for election there in May. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Peabody Essex Museum. With Power and Perspective, Early Photography in China, exploring the history of art, politics, and power through April 2nd, PEM.org. I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. And if your day is as hectic as mine, it's not a problem. Because you can download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Radio Boston. You can start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. Cloudy today with a high in the low 60s. It'll also be windy. There's a chance of rain this afternoon and this evening. Then later tonight, mostly cloudy and still windy. Temperatures fall to a low around 42. Tomorrow we'll have a partly sunny Friday with a high near 52. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from the Association of Plastic Recyclers, whose member companies recycle plastic packaging into new products, working towards a world where everyone uses less by recycling more. Learn more at PlasticsRecycling.org. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. When the United States invaded Iraq 20 years ago this week, some Pentagon officials talked of a bombing campaign that would cause shock and awe. Some opening salvos lit the night sky over Baghdad. This morning, we have voices of people who experienced that bombardment from the air 
and on the ground. Retired U.S. Air Force pilot Steve Ankerstar was flying a Nighthawk stealth fighter jet over the city that night. It became real as soon as I'm next to Baghdad, and it's really pretty dark. But I'm looking at my watch, and I'm counting down to 9 p.m. exactly Baghdad time, and that's when all these, you know, the first, I think, three to 400 cruise missiles are supposed to hit. And looking out the window, just boom, 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 all over Baghdad, you see these explosions, and you see the return fire. Shema Khalil was a teenager at the time, living in Baghdad with her family. I never saw this before. All the time I saw like the sky in Baghdad, clear, pure, nice blue. But at that time, it's really like action movies. For me, it's really scary experience. Anchorstar and Khalil agreed to join us to talk about their different experiences of that same night. Hi, Shema. I'm Steve. Hi, Steve. Can you describe the first time you shoot targets in Baghdad? And do you fully know that there are no civilians close to the places that you targeted? My targets were a command center and then a command bunker. I flew in, was able to hit, hit both of those uh, successfully and then uh, head back home. I would assume that these facilities were operational, and I would assume that, of course, if they're operational, there's going to be people in them. Uh, so I, I wasn't naive to that. Shema, what I would like to ask you, I can't really even imagine what it was like being on the ground during any of the attack, let alone being the ground as a teenager uh, during that time. So what was your perspective uh, that night, and were you in proximity to any of the explosions, or, or what can you share from your experience? I will never forget that night uh, because we were living in a place surrounded by uh, different government buildings. So there is like uh, many bombings close to our area. We were living like in the fourth level in the building and uh, my mom and dad trying to keep us together and calm down us and said, we will go downstairs. It was really crowded on the stairs because all the people pushing each other, they just want to survive and go downstairs before something happened. So we found a small park, it's close to our building, and we sat on the ground all together. We tried to close our eyes, close our ears. When the bombing happens, I remembered I lost hearing for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Certainly, I, I couldn't even imagine uh, that experience uh, on the ground and the intention of the U.S. plan was targeting the uh, Iraqi military forces, and I can totally empathize with the feeling of there's that, you know, no place to hide and, and no place to feel safe when you're under that kind of, uh, of attack. When the U.S. asked you to join the war of 2003, were there any doubts? And did you think about the consequences? Well, yes, uh, we th thought about that quite a bit as we were asked to to go forth and, and do our portion of the mission. Yeah, I can only speak for myself, but at that time as a service member, it was apparent to me that we did need to go in and remove Saddam Hussein uh, from power. The How we did that and the expectations of not only disabling the Iraqi military forces, but how the Iraqi people were going to accept us after that, I don't think that was necessarily thought through as uh, much as it could have.
it's hard. I know that you are part of the operation and you follow the, the orders or the instructions. But I know this is something bigger than me and you, uh, but we didn't expect that U.S. will do this to us because the country was already weak and need help. And they came and they uh, throw us uh, down the hill. We were expecting uh, George Bush or anyone in the government who uh, had the decision to start the war to apologize to Iraqi people. No one say this. Well, I appreciate that uh, perspective. So I can't speak for the U.S. government, but certainly I think the lessons are being learned, even if not being you know, outwardly acknowledged, if you will, to the Iraqi people. Are you hopeful that things are going to be better in 20, 30 years from now between U.S. and Iraqi relations, or are, are you pessimistic in that so much damage has been done that uh, there might not be a good way forward in the future? I think I have hope uh, because if you don't have hope, we can't live. So as much as we can uh, open spaces for learning from each other, talking to each other, I think this will make change. I certainly agree, uh, Shema, that uh, I'm also hopeful uh, that things improve uh, between U.S.-Iraqi relations over time. And I agree that uh, communicating uh, people's experiences and feelings and then drawing lessons from both of those uh, will be uh, worth it not only to uh, repair the, the damage that has been done, but also uh, to be useful as a case study for, for the future. So even though, you know, what happened uh, 20 years ago um, can't be undone, certainly the learning from it and moving forward as our two countries uh, work together to make things better. Um, I, I agree with you. Thank you so much, Steve, and uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing about your experience in Iraq. Yes, thank you as well, Shema. I really appreciated uh, talking with you and, and best of luck. Okay, wow. Where else do you hear conversations like that? Steve Ankerstar retired from the Air Force as a lieutenant colonel, now runs his own financial advising firm. Shema Khalil moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota in 2019 and is now the operations director for the Iraqi and American Reconciliation Project. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, an L.A. Times investigative reporter explains how thousands of photos of police officers were accidentally published in an online database. It's 829. A quick reminder that the WBUR app makes following the news all day easy. You can listen live, pause, and even rewind. That's the new WBUR app in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. 
President Biden is traveling to Ottawa today for talks with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. They're expected to discuss the war in Ukraine and efforts to help Haiti deal with deadly gang violence, especially in Port-au-Prince. Biden is scheduled to address Canada's parliament tomorrow before returning to the U.S. Plans by the Canadian government to build a nuclear waste storage facility near the shore of Lake Huron are drawing criticism from lawmakers in Michigan. Rick Brewer with member station WCMU reports. Michigan Democratic Congressman Dan Kildee's ask to President Biden can be boiled down to this. Tell Canada to find somewhere else to permanently store their nuclear waste. Surely somewhere in that vast landmass is a place more appropriate than in the basin of the greatest known freshwater source on the planet. Kildee says building the facility poses too much of a risk to the health and safety of the Great Lakes. 30 million people rely on the lakes for fresh drinking water in both the U.S. and Canada. Supporters of the plan argue the U.S. already has nuclear facilities on the Great Lakes. For NPR News, I'm Rick Brewer in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. The Federal Reserve is raising interest rates by a quarter point in its ongoing effort to lower inflation in the U.S. economy. The Fed has hiked rates nine times since March of last year. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A low-cost apartment building for women in Boston's Fenway neighborhood will remain affordable for the foreseeable future. The state attorney general's office made a deal with the owners of the Our Lady Guild House. They agreed to keep the building affordable. A pending sale threatened to increase rent and evict some tenants. Governor Maura Healey is reassuring people about the region's banking system. Her comments come after the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Healey says people and companies in Massachusetts were especially impacted by the collapse of SBV. She says w, she tells WBUR's Radio Boston people's money is safe in our local banks. Our regional banks are strong. They're really strong. Our core banking functions are strong. And There is no reason for people to not keep or put deposits in our regional banks. Healy is also calling on Congress to increase insurance on bank deposits. Right now, deposits up to $250,000 are fully insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. The Lynn Police Department says it's investigating one of its officers who punched a woman in the face during an arrest over the weekend. The incident was captured on body cam footage. The two officers on the scene claimed the woman was, aristi- was resisting arrest and that pepper spray didn't work. The town's mayor says every arrest involving use of force is investigated. A New Hampshire licensing agency plans to investigate administrators at Catholic Medical Center. The Office of Professional Licensure wants to know if those administrators put the public at risk by not reporting problems with a former heart surgeon there. That surgeon was named in over 20 malpractice suits while at CMC. A previous report from the Boston Globe showed that hospital executives knew about the doctor's problems and let him keep practicing. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. 
The Bruins are on home ice tonight. The team will skate with Montreal beginning at 7 p.m. The Celtics have the night off. They'll play the Indiana Pacers tomorrow at the Garden. We'll have overcast skies today with high temperatures in the low 60s. There's a chance of rain this afternoon. Cloudy tonight with a chance of rain before about 10 p.m. Temperatures will fall to the low 40s later tonight. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a low in the low with a high in the low 50s. It's 49 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Elections in Turkey are less than two months away, and that timing is awkward for the president who would like another term. People have criticized the government's recent response to an earthquake. NPR's Fatma Tanis has been asking how the catastrophe might influence the vote. On a sunny afternoon in the walled historic district of the city of Diyarbakir, crowds hang around outside a mosque after prayers. Many have nowhere else to go. Their homes were damaged in the earthquakes, and they spend days outdoors and nights in tents. One of them is 36-year-old Shukran, who only gave her first name to speak about the government's response as some have faced arrest for criticizing it. Unfortunately, we are not getting help. The Red Crescent Relief used to give out food, but now that stopped too. Diyarbakir is Turkey's largest Kurdish-majority city. 400 people died here in the earthquakes. 2,000 buildings were damaged. But Shukran says because other cities are so much worse, people here have been overlooked. May God have mercy on all our dead everywhere, but we have survivors here and we need to help them. At a coffee house nearby, 48-year-old Fırat Kaymak is sitting with friends. As they smoke cigarettes and sip Turkish coffee, he recalls the night of the quakes. I've never felt fear like that in my life. It was as though someone had picked up our building and was shaking it hard. Many of his friends are fired up about politics now. They notice that government buildings, including housing for lower-income families, stayed intact, while hundreds of thousands of others were damaged due to shoddy construction. Many contractors have been arrested, but Kaimak says it's not enough. Clearly, the government knows how to build its own property well, but they couldn't bother regulating all the other ones. I feel abandoned. We all feel abandoned. Turkey's disaster management agency and overall government institutions have suffered a great blow to their reputation, says Vahap Joshkun. He's a political analyst and professor of law here at Dijla University. He says people saw loved ones die under the rubble as they waited for rescue teams that arrived too late. And Joshkun says they know exactly where to point the blame. All of the government decision-making comes from one place, from one person. And this extremely centralized system was effectively crushed by the earthquake. 
Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is on the ballot May 14th, but many see the election as a vote on a change he pushed through five years ago. He held a referendum to replace the country's parliamentary system with an executive presidency, giving him sweeping powers and control. Now, many people believe that the lack of checks and balances hollowed out government institutions, allowing corruption and dysfunction that made the government less responsive to disasters as well as the poor economy. This election will be about more than the candidates. It's actually a serious referendum. Do we want this system of executive presidency to continue or not? The Kurdish vote has often been split between Erdogan and rival parties, meaning the people here could play a pivotal role in Turkey's future. Back in the old city, Fırat Kaymak says for him, the earthquake was the last drop in the bucket. Something has to change in this country, he says. Otherwise, our homes will remain coffins. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Diyarbakir, Turkey. March Madness, the NCAA basketball tournament, began last week with the chaos of 68 teams. Just 16 teams are left in both the men's and women's division, one college basketball tournament, and it's still wide open. Which is why we have called up NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman, who's been watching. Hey there, Tom. Hi, Steve. Okay, uh, the men's tournament, we're down to 16. Normally, you would have a good sense of who's favored to win at this point. Normally, but this year is kind of hard to pin down. There are two number one seeds left in the last 16, Alabama and Houston. Neither has looked like the hands-down best team. Two other number one seeds, Purdue and defending champion Kansas, are out, mm -hmm. as are two number two seeds. That opens things up for teams not used to getting this far. Eleven conferences are represented in the Sweet 16. That's a lot. And some blue bloods of men's college hoops are no-shows. Duke, North Carolina. Carolina, Kansas, Kentucky. This is the second time in the last three years not one of them got to the Sweet 16. Before that, from 1980 to 2019, at least one got this far each of those years. Which implies the talent is more spread out among other teams. Why would it be more spread out than in the past? It does imply that. I think certainly the transfer portal system is having an impact. Since 2021, it has allowed athletes to switch schools and play immediately. Last year, about 1,650 Division I men's college basketball players went into the portal. Uh, it had a big impact on spreading talent among schools. This week, Tom Izzo, the longtime Michigan State head coach and transfer portal critic, talked about the pluses and minuses. Here he is. The portal is not all bad. I mean, you have to, every place isn't for everybody. What to me is bad about it is the fact that every kid who has a bad day just thinks about leaving. At this level, if you're half in, you're nowhere. And despite this criticism, Izzo has taken advantage and benefited this tournament. He's gotten big contributions from a couple of players who transferred from other schools. Okay, so a shifting talent pool. Which teams might surprise us in this final 16? 
Princeton is your main Cinderella story as a 15 seed. I was at the Tigers' first two tournament wins, and they are not your old-fashioned Princeton from yesteryear. They play the modern game well. In their win mm. over Missouri, they shot the lights out, out-rebounded Missouri with a shorter, ultra-aggressive team. Then there's Florida Atlantic, another lower-seeded underdog in their first men's tournament since 2002. A lot of fans calling FAU a Cinderella team, but they're not having it. They say they're better than people think, and their next chance to prove it is today against a very good and physical defensive team, Tennessee. Okay. What are you looking for on the women's side, the Final 16? You know, we've got parity, which is great. For too long, the women's game has been defined by the best players and teams at the top without much depth in the game. But again, thanks to the transfer portal, thanks to the women's game growing in popularity, more good players are emerging. You're seeing the results. Two number one seeds, Stanford and Indiana, lost before the Sweet 16. That's the first time that's happened since 1998. Defending champion South Carolina still is the heavyweight. The Gamecocks so far are rolling, but there are some worthy the challengers remaining, perennial power UConn, LSU, powered by forward Angel Reese, Iowa with guard Caitlin Clark. There's enough skill out there, Steve, to catch South Carolina, but it's going to be tough. Tom, thanks. It's always good to talk with you. Good to talk to you. NPR's Tom Goldman. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, after several upsets in the opening rounds, March Madness resumes with the men's college basketball tournament today and the women's tomorrow. Low 60s and windy today under mostly cloudy skies. We may see some rain showers this afternoon. Tonight, temperatures fall to the low 40s. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds. It'll be in the low 50s. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Clark, where chef demonstrations of Wolf Appliances help you compare features and taste the results of ovens, cooktops, ranges, and more. ClarkLiving.com demo. A Framingham-based HR company is the latest tech startup to lay off workers this year. WorkHuman says it's cutting 130 jobs. That's about 10 percent of its workforce. The company's CEO says WorkHuman wants to stay profitable. It's unclear how many Massachusetts workers will be affected. Boston City officials want to add over 200 liquor licenses to specific neighborhoods over the next five years. Those licenses would not be able to be transferred to other parts of Boston. City councilors tell the Boston Herald the proposal will help business owners of color. The bill still needs approval from the mayor, state legislature, and the governor. A gallon of regular gas now costs $1 less in Massachusetts than it did at this time last year. AAA reports a gallon of regular is $3.26. That's also 17 cents below the current national average of $3.43. It's $8.44. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote. Returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage now through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The main stage at the music festival Coachella will feature an artist singing entirely in Arabic. And Eliana is not the only Arab musician blowing up right now. 
what's different this time around is that, you know, these artists are kind of using an updated sound. Arabic music is on the brink of a global breakthrough. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. The Los Angeles police chief and one of his commanders are under investigation following the release of thousands of photos of LAPD officers, including many who work undercover. The photos and identifying information about more than 9,000 officers were given to a watchdog group and posted on a website called Watch the Watchers. Chief Michael Moore concedes it's put some officers at risk. LA Times investigative crime report Richard Winton has been covering this story and joins me now. Good morning, Richard. Good morning. So if you could just walk us through how this happened, how did a public information request end up including the identity of undercover officers blowing their covers, essentially? So what happened was there was basically a request to get these records and there was, you know, the unusual delays and sort of discussions and there was actually a, a lawsuit filed. And then the city, at some point, along with the Los Angeles Police Department, decided they would turn over the photos. Mm-hmm. There was discussion that they would these items would be turned over, but not the ones who were undercover in some capacity, which their identity would threaten their safety. Somehow, internally, within the LAPD, that wasn't really done, and only a very small group of officers' photos were withheld. And now it turns out more than 9,000 were turned over, and including in that, were numerous people who do work undercover day to day. Some Mm. of them are in deep covers. Some are assigned to task force or working, say, with the FBI or some other federal agency in some capacity. So what does this mean for their safety and for their investigations? Well, the big question is they're already apparently making efforts to protect them and sort of make sure that there's no actual threat posed to them. But no one really knows at this point because obviously it's not like someone wants to talk about the fact that their cover's been blown potentially. And no, we may not know the consequences immediately. But yes, there is a potential here of life and death kind of issues for maybe a, a small number, maybe like 40 or 50 people. How does something like this happen? I mean, I've made uh, public information requests where things are so heavily redacted, I can't even understand the document I'm reading sometimes. So how is there such an oversight for these handful of officers? Well, what happened was it seems that someone, and they haven't identified who specifically individually in the department did this, when they filtered out who shouldn't be turned over, they didn't really go back and say, to these, say, these various divisions, hey, we're going to release these photos. Are there people here undercover in these photos who we shouldn't release? Because if we do, their investigations or their joint investigations, maybe with other things like the FBI, will be threatened. Uh, That just basic internal checks and balances didn't occur. And so last year, these photos were turned over, and eventually they were built into this website, which appeared last Friday. And what's the goal of the website? The goal of the website is basically, it's, they're just about public disclosure and public responsibility. These are the people we pay to be the servants in Los Angeles who look, enforce laws. Mm-hmm. LA Times reporter Richard Winton, thank you so much for your time and your reporting. Thank you.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Coming up next, the Marketplace Morning Report delves into the thinking behind the Federal Reserve's decision yesterday to raise interest rates again. It's 849. WBUR supporters include Merrimack College, helping teachers to become agents of learning in the community through master's programs and licensures. Learn more at online.merrimack.edu. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, from Nubian Square to the South End, Malcolm X spent years in Boston, learning, listening to jazz, and honing his message. We uncover how neighborhoods here influenced the revolutionary and explore the way the city has and has not embraced him. That's Radio Boston Today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Cloudy, windy, and around 60 today. Rain possible this afternoon and this evening. Then later tonight, cloudy and low 40s. Then a partly sunny Friday in the low 50s. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston at 8.50. A new report finds that Asian American students in Boston public high schools are more likely to report feeling an absence of belonging than their peers. The Common Podcast digs into the details of the report today. You can find The Common, hosted by Daryl C. Murphy, on your podcast app. Maybe problems in banking world could actually help fight inflation. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals who want to join an inclusive and unique culture. More information, including application, at Progressive.com careers. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. The Federal Reserve is juggling multiple crises. It has to deal with fear in the banking system, but it's still worried about inflation, too. And in fact, the Fed continued its series of interest rate hikes yesterday, raising rates a quarter of a percentage point. But the two challenges could ironically, in a kind of twisted kind of way, work together. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer explains. Fed Chair Jerome Powell spent much of yesterday's press conference talking about the Fed's enemy number one inflation. Powell said no one should doubt the Fed's resolve in continuing to raise interest rates to get inflation down to its target of 2 percent. He said the Fed did consider pausing rate hikes, but inflation was higher than expected last month. And Powell says the Fed doesn't want to look like it's backing down. We are committed to restoring price stability, and all of the evidence says that the public has confidence that we will do so, that we'll bring inflation down to 2 percent over time. It is important that we sustain that confidence with our actions as well as our words. The Fed has another enemy to keep an eye on, all the banking turmoil. But in a weird way, that actually might be more of a frenemy. That's because jittery bankers are less likely to lend, and that can cool off the economy, kind of like a Fed interest rate hike. We're looking at what's happening among the banks, 
uh, and asking, is there going to be some tightening of credit conditions? And then we're thinking about that as effectively doing the same thing that rate hikes do. So in a way, that substitutes for rate hikes. But Powell says don't get carried away and expect the Fed to lower interest rates anytime soon. He says Fed officials don't foresee rate cuts this year. And while the Fed is investigating why Silicon Valley Bank failed, Powell says he would also welcome an independent investigation. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. Are your deposits safe? That is the bottom line fear that's driven the turmoil in the banking system these past few weeks. The FDIC stepped in and said, yes, yes, they're safe, and even said it would cover uninsured deposits. That's deposits more than $250,000 for a few banks in particular. Well, some have said, well, why don't we do that all the time? Insure every deposit, everywhere, all at once. To that, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said no. Here's Marketplace's Nova Sappho. Congress is supposed to approve any increase of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation's $250,000 cap on deposit guarantees. But at a time of deep divisions in Washington, business groups have urged the Biden administration to find a workaround. Yesterday at a Senate committee hearing, Janet Yellen said no. This is not something that we have looked at. Yellen said insuring all deposits, big and small, would be a decision made case by case for each bank if more of them fail. When such a failure is deemed to create the risk of a contagious bank run. Is when the administration can invoke the systemic risk exception. That exception gave regulators the power to guarantee all deposits at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up in the 2 to 9 tenths percent range, with the Dow future up 48 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is at 3.510%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. The three banks that have failed so far were all what you might call crypto-friendly. Now that they're out of the game for a while, cryptocurrency has a problem. There is a void of banks willing to do business with crypto companies. Marketplace Tech has been delving into this, and David Brancaccio spoke with Marketplace Tech host Megan McCarty-Carino about it. Why don't you start with the, I don't know, inherent irony here. Crypto companies are meant to bypass traditional banks, right? Yet they need plain old banks big time anyway. Why? Well, you know, as long as these businesses are transacting in the world outside of crypto, they need U.S. dollars. They need traditional banking systems. They have employees they need to pay. They have taxes they need to pay. They need to do so generally using regular currency. So they need to do that through the banking system. And three banks in particular were crucial to this crypto ecosystem, Silvergate, Silicon Valley, and Signature. But why so important? Yeah, Silicon Valley Bank obviously has been top of mind. It was known for sort of being the bank of choice for venture-backed startups, of which some were cryptocurrency companies. Um, but probably the big one was Silvergate, which actually failed earlier in that week before SVB, and it closed down voluntarily. It had a lot of ties to crypto and a lot of exposure to 
a little crypto exchange you might know called FTX. It also sort of catered to the crypto community. It had a blockchain-based payment system that allowed payments to be transacted 24 hours, seven days a week, which is kind of unusual in the banking world. Uh, then finally, Signature Bank, it also operated one of these blockchain-based payment networks. I mean, may I ask, what's a crypto business to do if they no longer have a bank available that is super into crypto? I mean, this could really create a situation where the number of banks working with crypto becomes even smaller, sort of concentrating the risk of this volatile industry in fewer banks, which we know is not good. You know, by the way, Megan, right? Bitcoin, after its long collapse, is up sharply this year. How does that track with the tremors in the industry more widely? Right. Well, I mean, this might have a little bit more to do with the interest rate environment than than anything else. But definitely there's a narrative in the crypto community that, hey, nothing's better for, you know, selling crypto investments than a meltdown in the traditional banking world. Uh, in fact, last week there was a, a truck with a giant ad for Bitcoin plastered on it that was parked in front of Silicon Valley Bank. It said, be your own bank. So I guess, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Okay. Marketplace tech host, Megan McCarty-Carino. Thank you. Thank you. That was Marketplace's David Brancaccio and Megan McCarty-Carino. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. It'll be windy and cloudy today. Temperatures will rise to the low 60s. This afternoon, we may see some rain. Showers are also possible this evening. Then overnight, cloudy and windy with temperatures falling to the low 40s. Tomorrow, we end the week with more sun than clouds. It'll be in the low 50s. Right now, it's 49 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, from Nubian Square to the South End, Malcolm X spent years in Boston, learning, listening to jazz, and honing his message. We uncover how neighborhoods here influence the revolutionary and explore the way the city has and has not embraced him. That's Radio Boston Today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. You know what I love about hosting Morning Edition? I get to introduce the work of our incredible reporters or interview people living through their most joyous moments and sometimes their most difficult days. It helps me and you, our listeners, understand the world we live in. But it also costs money, so donate your car towards supporting the work. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org cars. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. <laughs> 